On this episode of the podcast, I discuss the exploration of Mars with planetary scientist Dr. Tanya Harrison, who spent years working on the Opportunity, Curiosity, and Perseverance rovers, as well as the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Tanya and her colleagues use rock samples, chemical and spectral analysis, as well as sound and photo imagery beamed back via the Deep Space Network to piece together the history of Mars and the inner solar system. Drawn together, their work has the potential of answering some of the most profound scientific questions, including how life began, whether it ever existed on Mars, and whether we're alone in the universe. We discuss what life is like behind the orbiter's lens, and how rovers compare to human investigators on the ground. How are meteorite craters and geology used to date and age a planet? How do we test for life, and why does Mars have such unusually large geological features? This is a conversation about the love of exploration and about the limits of what robots and remote approaches can achieve, as well as what we might be able to accomplish once boots are on the ground. I hope you enjoy. Escaped Sapiens. You've spent your entire career working with satellites and remotely controlled robots on other planets. But you've also been uh, interested in the impact of human spaceflight, the Apollo programs, for example, on, uh, on here on Earth. And so a question I'm interested in uh, your opinion on is, do you think it, it's a good investment to be spending money on man flight or should we be focusing on remote you know, telescopes, imagery and, and ro robotic approaches uh, instead? I think that's a really important question and it comes down to what the goal of the exploration is. Right now, robots are certainly far more efficient in terms of cost, but they're not a replacement for the capabilities of humans at this point. You can't replace the experience and ingenuity of a human that is able to go and stand in a place, you know, pick up a rock, rotate it 360 degrees and just like put all of their experience and knowledge into that moment. It's very, very, we still don't have the ability to replicate that, but it's very expensive. If we want to send a human mission to the moon or to Mars, we're talking orders of magnitude more than a space telescope. And we haven't seen a ton of science outcomes from human spaceflight so far. We had the flags and footprints approach of Apollo, which we did get a lot of science out of that in terms of bringing back rock samples that scientists are still studying today. And then we had a big gap between that and the space shuttle space station era. But even that I would argue is, is still kind of a flags and footprints thing. It's, hey, we have the ability to keep humans in space and we're gonna stay up here to remind you of that. And we've done some science along the way, you know, they've done some experiments on the space station. But I would argue for, the, the cost of the space station compared to something like the cost of the Hubble Space Telescope or now the James Webb Space Telescope, the output that you're getting from that, it doesn't even come close. And so if we want human spaceflight to actually have exploration goals attached to it, we, we need to create those. Why are we sending humans? Why do we want to send humans in the first place? And I think that's the piece that's been missing so far. I guess the question is, you know, let's let's think about uh, Mars exploration. If you actually had boots on the ground, what specifically, what you know, what new things could you do that you absolutely can't do with rovers? What, what's what's the science benefit there? The biggest benefit is speed. So humans are much much faster than a rover. Um, I think it was Steve Squires who was the head of the Spirit and Opportunity mission 
who said, you know, it would take a human a couple of weeks to do what it took the rovers five years to do. Um, you know, we can only drive the rovers a few meters a day. They're really limited on power. They're really limited on the amount of data they can send back to Earth each day. And so instead of having, you know, collecting that, sending it back, have people look at it here, figure out what can we do in a single day, send that back to the rover. You have people there doing that in real time. I think it will also help us fill in a lot of small pieces of what we think we know about Mars, because we have this really broad view from satellites where we're just looking at the entire planet at different scales. And then we have these hyper-local views of the handful of places that we've managed to land a rover or a lander, but we, we can't connect all of those pieces together efficiently or confidently. Uh, but having the, the human aspect there, like being able to act immediately on intuition and saying, oh, I think this looks like a thing that I saw from this other rover, or, oh, I recognize this type of feature either in a rock or in the landscape. I saw this in the desert in Jordan one time, and we know on Earth this is how it formed. So this must be what happened on Mars. Um, it really gives you that extra layer of getting that information. When you, uh, so I know that you do these comparisons, you, you send out rovers into the desert to compare, you know, what they can find in comparison to what a human team could find. Have you ever had a situation where the, when you're doing these uh, sort of tests on Earth, you've you found something that was completely wrong? As in, you, you think you found something using the rover and then the human team has a completely different uh, analysis of the situation? I would say we had an experience where we just completely missed something altogether. So uh, we did an operational readiness test like this at the Canadian Space Agency. Their headquarters is just a little bit east of Montreal and they have a Mars yard. And so we were doing an, an experiment where we were driving our rover through their Mars yard and testing a microscopic imager. Now the rocks that are in the Mars yard there are just rocks that they found kind of in the area. They didn't import them from a desert or anything like that. And there's one that is just chock full of little fossils. And if you walk up to it as a human and look at it, like not even from very far away, they're, they're very obvious. I think even if you weren't a geologist, you would kind of recognize like, oh, there's some shells in this rock. And we did not see them with the rover at all. Like either just the spot that we imaged or the images itself, like we completely missed them. And so when we came out into the field, which is, you know, just walking out into the yard, we walked up to the rock and everybody was just amazed. Like, how could we miss something so obvious to the human eye with a rover that was, you know, a few meters away from this rock? It's absolutely astonishing. And so it could be something as simple as that. Like, did we just not drive close enough? Did we not look at the right rock? Did we misinterpret something because what we think we know of as a signal of life isn't the same on Mars because mm -hmm. maybe we wouldn't expect it to be. Um, and we're very limited with what we can do on the platforms with the rovers as well. You know, we've got a handful of instruments there, but if you've got humans and they've come with a ship that has a ton of lab equipment on it, that is just not practical to miniaturize to the size of a rover platform. It gives us the ability to do so many more experiments and so much more detailed analysis on any samples that we're collecting that it's really going to be a game changer on that front. So you're not worried that we haven't found life yet. It could just be that uh, the limitations of the rovers themselves mean that we've overlooked something could, that may be completely obvious to the first boots on the ground. 
I mean, I think that life on Mars, if it was there, it was probably in the distant past when, you know, we're talking like three and a half billion years ago when it was warm and wet, it still had a magnetic field. And that means it's probably really deeply buried, any evidence of it, whether it's still alive or not. So I don't think that we're going to find it with a rover that can scratch a couple of centimeters below the surface. I think we're going to need humans that drill really deep cores, kind of like we do in Antarctica and Greenland. And that's really going to answer those key questions because the surface has just been kind of sitting there exposed to the elements for a very long time compared to when life might have been around. And th this is why we send the rovers to places that we think are ancient rocks that are exposed at the surface. But you've still had a lot of stuff going on since the time that life probably could have been around. You know, you've got terrible radiation environment. You've got asteroid impacts left and right. You have wind erosion that's just been going on for the last three billion years. And that's really good at burying things. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we need humans to be able to definitively answer that question. There may not be any life on Mars in the first couple of centimeters. Is there life on Mars like 100 meters down? Maybe. One of the things that I worry about thinking about human presence on Mars is that if you think back to the Apollo program, you know, originally people were super excited about the program and, and we got boots on the ground, but then pretty quickly thereafter, interest dried up and the funding dried up as well. And then, uh, you know, we didn't set down a permanent presence or the sort of presence you'd need to dig 100 meters into the ground to find that life. Um, so I'm wondering, do you think something's different here uh, with the Mars uh, case? Do, do you think this time when we go, we really will uh, stay and set up a permanent presence? Is, is that what you'd expect? I think we have to. It, it's the only thing that makes sense for the amount of time it would take to get there. You're talking a minimum of five years for humans to get to Mars, stay on Mars long enough that it gets back to a point in its orbit that they could feasibly then come back to Earth. And you're talking probably tens of billions of dollars for this mission to happen. And it, it, in my mind, granted, I'm not a politician, but to me, logically, it wouldn't make sense to invest that much time and money to just go and say, okay, we've been here and then come back home. And it won't really be long enough for us to accomplish all of the science goals that we have in the Mars science community. In two years, we're probably not going to be able to go to all the places we would want to visit to try to answer this question or drill these cores, collect samples, all of these things. Um, but I think the key to harnessing the interest of the public is going to be the why are we here? What is the goal? And we didn't have a long-term goal when it came to Apollo. It very much was, we're going to the moon to beat the Russians. And when we did that, I think the public stopped caring because we kept going back to the moon. We weren't really doing anything new as far as the public could tell, even though there were differences in the missions. You know, they, they changed some of the technology, they added rovers, they started bringing back more samples. They eventually actually sent a geologist, which I don't know why it took so many missions before they sent a geologist to the moon, but- This was Harrison, right? Yeah, Harrison Schmidt. Um, and so there, there was no why after the first mission as far as the public was concerned. So I think we need to communicate this time around, why are we sending humans? Why is it worth the amount of money? And I think for sustained interest, it can't just be, 
the United States going if we're talking like a NASA mission. This has to be an international partnership. We want to get multiple countries involved. We need better representation of who is going. Like it shouldn't just be a crew of all white men. You know, let's make people feel like this is something that matters and that they can be a part of and that they are represented in this first group of people that are going to an entirely new planet in our solar system. I think also one of the key differences now is we're going to have crisp footage coming back. You know, unlike the Apollo program, you, you'll be able to sort of experience it more like it really is down on the ground. Yeah, I think we can really give that immersive experience. And then, you know, we have amazing images that are coming back from the rovers all the time, but you're still missing that human element. And I think if we have humans there on the ground sharing their experience and doing so in a way that can make people feel something on earth, that's really important. I, it can't just be this dry engineer standing on the surface saying, oh, temperature is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And these, I see some rocks that are gray and some other rocks that are red and this tells me, and then they just like spew a bunch of jargon. That's not the way to get people to care. So we might need the, the space agency PR to back off a little bit and let them have a little bit more personality because it, it does tend to be a very sanitized view of things while people are active astronauts. And then after they retire, that's when you start to get the fun stories and they really get to be themselves. And I feel like that's, it's really unfortunate. I understand like as government agencies, they have to maintain a certain aura around them, I guess, but it's, it's not the way to get people to care about things. And it, it's unfortunate. Like it makes me want to cry sometimes watching how <laughs> boring NASA press conferences can be about the most exciting thing that anybody could be tuned into that day. Like it, it certainly is not reflective of how excited the people are behind the scenes working on these missions and being excited about space. Like I, I want us to be people. I want them to see everybody as people so that it's not like we're here telling you that we've discovered life on Mars. They're like, you guys, we found life on Mars. This is the biggest thing we've ever discovered in all of space. This is amazing. This is why you should care. Let me talk to you in the way that is as excited as our whole community is right now. <laughs> so who do you think you should send then in that first batch to really get the populace excited? Who should be going to start with? Is it so it's you would definitely send scientists to start with though, but who else would uh, be in the crew? I mean, other than the obvious, you need like a scientist, you need an engineer, you need a doctor. I think it would be really great to send someone who is either you know some kind of artist and mm -hmm. or social scientist who kind of watches like the behavioral side of things, the emotional side of things, um, someone that can communicate better than many scientists and engineers are capable of doing to really capture what the experience is like and the impact that it's having on the people on the crew. Have you ever been in the control room during a landing of, of a rover or have you ever had that sort of an experience? Not during landing, no. Um, that's one of my biggest regrets. I left working on Curiosity shortly before it landed. And so I wasn't at JPL when the landing happened. And as I was watching it remotely from Canada, I, I was like trying really hard not to cry. I'm like, oh, I'm not there. All my friends are there. I worked on this rover for so long and like I wasn't there to see it land on the surface. <laughs> so that was unfortunate. You went back to do your PhD, right? That's So you were working and then you stopped and did your PhD, then you came back. Is that, is that why you went there at the time or? 
Yeah. So I, I mean, I also left because I was being really severely harassed at my job and uh, (laughs) that was, that was it more than going to get my PhD. That was what drove me to go back to school. Mm -hmm. Um, And my goal had been, well, I at least want to stay until the Rover lands. Like I've put in so Mm -hmm. much work on this, but the environment was so bad that it, it wasn't worth staying that long. And so I left sooner than I thought I would. And I regretted that for a long time, actually. But um, I mean, I've gotten to work on so many missions at this point. It Not being there for a landing is not that big of a deal to me anymore. I was really bummed, though, because I missed the launch of Curiosity. And then I was going to go to the launch of Perseverance. And I worked on cameras for that one as well. And then uh, I had like major surgery scheduled and it got shifted or sorry, the surgery didn't get shifted. The launch date got shifted. So I couldn't go because it was like the day of or the day after my surgery. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to see one of these rovers launch. <laughs> You're in the right field to actually see one though, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen many launches, but I've never seen uh, a launch of something that I like really directly worked on very well. I take that back. I've seen launches from planet of planet satellites, which I work on now, but I really wanted to be there like for one of the rover launches. Mm. The reason why I'm curious is because, you know, Curiosity rover was actually, I suppose the first time that I was really, really following along. I, I, I was sort of on the edge of my seat waiting to see, you know, what the outcome would be. Is it going to touch down? Is it going to survive? Are we going to get that first set of photos? What are they going to look like? And so for someone who actually works on these rovers and who actually has been involved sort of intimately with their, with the entire process, I suppose, um, what's that feeling like in the weeks? It must be super stressful. And then just the elation of actually seeing a successful uh, outcome. Can you sort of describe what that's like? It's extremely nerve wracking. I think, um, especially earlier on when our track record was not as great as it is now, um, the, uh, when we were getting ready for curiosity to land, there was a lot of concern that the sky crane system wasn't going to work, not from the engineers, the engineers that designed it were like, yeah, we got this. This is great. But all the scientists, at least where I was working, we were freaking out. We're like, there's no way this crazy system is going to work. It's going to crash into the surface of Mars. We're all going to lose our jobs. Like, this is going to be terrible. We were like, it was causing so much anxiety. And then I, I forget when it was, but at some point, I think early in the year that Curiosity landed, but after it launched, a bunch of us went to JPL and we got like a presentation from Adam Steltzner, who's like one of the lead people on the, the Skycrane system. And when he explained all of it and just like the beautiful engineering behind it and all of the things that they had taken into account, I felt so much better. I was like, okay, I think this might actually work after all. But that I think was the most anxiety we've had in a, in a while because it's so different from like orbit insertion of a satellite or like when Curi- when um, Spirit and Opportunity landed, those were airbags and we'd used those before. So trying this whole new system that's like super complicated and so many pieces have to go right. Like you're just sitting there thinking, oh my God, if this rover crashes, it was so expensive. It was delayed. Like this is going to be the end of the Mars exploration program. NASA's just going to be like, we're not spending any more money on this. You guys are crazy. (laughs) So I'm really glad it worked not only once, but twice with Perseverance. So it's obviously a really robust system. Is that the system that's going to be employed moving forward or is that just for the particular, these two rovers? It 
It probably just depends on the size. So the airbag system was perfectly fine for rovers the size of Spirit and Opportunity, which are kind of like uh, smaller than a golf cart. Um, But when you look at Curiosity and Perseverance, they're more like the size of a Mini Cooper. So they were just too large to feasibly land with this bouncing airbag system. So they needed to design something new. So if we were going to launch something that's like a smaller rover, you could probably go back to the airbag system. It's a lot cheaper. It's a lot less complicated. The downside is you probably can't land quite as precisely, like, Mm -hmm. because you bounce and then you stop at some point. The Sky Crane, especially now with they've added this terrain relative navigation system that we didn't have on Curiosity, but we did have on Perseverance. It can actually come down within a really, really tightly constrained, we call landing ellipse, And then as it's coming down, if it looks like it's coming down on top of a pointy rock or something we don't want to land on, it could actually move itself and then land in a safer position. So it's definitely the best landing system in terms of we really want to land in a very precise place or a very um, dangerous place. Like if we're trying to land inside a crater like we did with Curiosity and Perseverance, or we, we don't want to land very far away from the thing that we're driving to. But because of the cost and complexity, if for some reason we were going to send a smaller rover, I don't know why we would do that. I don't really see us going backward, but you might use a cheaper landing system. Maybe you'd send multiple rovers you know, very cheaply, send hundreds of them or something. I guess maybe in the future, the do you think we'll be sending, will Starship be the next thing that realistically de- delivers uh, drones, do you think? or That would be amazing. And I think... This is a missed opportunity when it comes to Mars exploration right now. You've got SpaceX doing their thing and you've got NASA doing their thing, but it would be great if there was some more collaboration there. Like right now, NASA is really focused on Mars sample return, which is like Perseverance is going and collecting these little test tubes of rock cores and it's kind of spitting them out. And then a fetch rover probably 10 years from now is going to go collect those samples and then bring them back to Earth with this little Mars ascent vehicle thing. So it'll like collect them, launch them to meet uh, with a satellite in orbit of Mars, and then that will come back to Earth. But that process is like 10 years or more, depending on how long it actually takes to build that system and get it to Mars and work successfully. And it's returning something like a few kilograms worth of rock. It's not very much but Starship can carry something like 13 metric tons. And so if NASA was actually working with SpaceX, like, hey, let's like collaborate on the goals and the funding and, and you know, figure all this out. Maybe we, instead of spending all this money on this separate system that is going to cost maybe more than Starship to send it back a very tiny amount, instead we could be utilizing this commercial sector better and the innovation and the speed at which things are going there to benefit Mars science as, as a whole. And I think SpaceX would be really open to this. They've had a few um, landing site workshops over the last few years where they brought in a handful of Mars scientists. Um, I was lucky enough to be involved with all of them so far. And they were asking us for advice. You know, they're like, what, what are the gaps in knowledge that we need to make sure that we pick the perfect landing site for humans if we we're going to land with Starship? And I thought that that was really great that they were consulting the community. Um, but it was a very informal thing. It wasn't like SpaceX is doing this with NASA. It was SpaceX is going to go and find the people that know their shit when it comes to Mars and, and talk to them. So it was very proactive on the part of SpaceX. Why? So 
this is one thing I don't understand about the Perseverance rover. Okay, it's collecting these samples and then there's going to be a second mission which sends them back. Why wouldn't you just design a mission to do it, you know, in 10 years time, do the entire thing? Is there any reason why you want to collect the samples during this mission and send them back in another mission as opposed to just doing it all together in one? So it's mostly risk reduction. The original idea many years ago was that Curiosity was actually going to be the one to collect samples and it would be hopefully this all in one mission. And this is back before Curiosity was, you know, it was originally supposed to launch in like 2009. Um, but I think they were concerned that there was so much new technology, the sample collection, the ascent vehicle, the return, because we've never done sample return from Mars before. And at that point, we'd never even done like robotic sample return from the moon. Um, it was only in the last year or two that China actually did that when it comes to the moon. Um, so they break it down into pieces. And it's frustrating, certainly as a scientist, because it just makes it take so much longer. And in the end, it's probably more expensive because you've broken it across all of these things. So it, it slows down the pace of actually getting the science done. Um, the only plus side is, well, we got another landing site out of it. So we got to do science at Gale, Gale Crater. Uh, now we're doing science in Jezero Crater. But it certainly would have been great if we could just do it all at once. Do you think actually we need to have private interests uh, in order to speed up the process? I mean, companies don't want to be spending money that they don't have to, right? If it's their own money. Do you think that that's really where the future of space exploration is going? Or do you think government will always play a major role? I think the government kind of has to set the vision or incentive when it comes to something that today might not have a lot of commercial payoff. So we're seeing a lot of expansion in the commercial space sector in low Earth orbit because there's a lot of commercial opportunity there. You can sell data from satellites. Uh, you can have telecommunication satellites. There's, there's all sorts of applications where it's very easy to make the business case. But when you start looking at the moon and Mars, the business case for that is so far out that it's not realistic for people to be spending much money on it in the commercial sector, unless you're someone like Elon Musk, who everything he's done has been with this goal of, I want to send people to Mars at some point. And you know whether it's directly spending money on SpaceX or investing in other things that could get him toward that goal, either technology-wise or monetarily. Let me make a business that will generate more money that I can invest in my goal of going to Mars. And the, the benefit there as well is these, these billionaires that have these, these goals in space, you know, ignoring the fact that there's all sorts of issues with the fact that billionaires exist in the first place, and we won't get into that here. But the, the, the good side of this is they have a very focused goal. And that is something that space agencies often don't get to have because at least when it comes to NASA, the goal of NASA changes with every presidential administration because everyone wants their thing. And we've seen this in the last few presidents. You know, we had, um, we had the moon as a goal and then we went to Mars and then we went to asteroids and then we went back to the moon. And now I don't think Joe Biden really has a specific goal when it comes to space because, you know, if there's more important things going on like the pandemic and climate change. And so I, I haven't really heard much in terms of like specific space policy other than I think the Artemis mission is going to continue, which is cool going back to the moon, but it hasn't been like, here's a big stamp on this program that I would like to have. So 
space is not a fast thing. So if you're trying to get like humans to Mars, there's no way you're going to accomplish that in a four-year or an eight-year presidential time span. Whereas like Elon Musk has had this goal since the beginning of SpaceX, which is what, like 2000, 2001. So he can actually keep progress going in that specific direction. So I think this is where you have the benefit of like sort of long-term vision setting on both the side of the billionaires, but also on the side of the government. Like if the government has um, grant programs where they're saying, we want you to develop technology for a specific thing. Like there's a program called uh, commercial lunar payload services or CLIPS. So they're paying companies to develop specific technology for lunar landers, um, ice extraction, mapping, all of that kind of stuff. So that starts the economy going and then you've generated this competition on the commercial side of, okay, who's going to be the first company to develop this or this or this? So I think that's where the government really comes in because, yeah, unless you just have somebody really rich that happens to care about Mars, there's probably not going to be very many companies that are like, I'm going to develop landing tech for Mars, or I want to develop my own rover to go look for life. Like there's no commercial benefit to that. In terms of uh, what the rovers we do have can do, though, in terms of looking for life and other things, what what can we learn? So, what 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 is the difference ranging from opportunity all the way through to perseverance? What can the rovers do, and and what are they primarily searching for at the moment? So, it's been this stepwise approach. We started by looking for or following the water. So we had instruments on spirit and opportunity that were specifically designed to look for things like hydrated minerals. So minerals that have water bound in their structure somehow. And we were able to confirm at both of the landing sites for those rovers, there had been water there in the past. So then with curiosity, we took that to looking for signs of habitability. So was the water that was there uh, were the conditions in that water conducive to life as we know it? So what was the chemical composition of the water? What was the temperature? How long was it there for? Um, we had the ability with curiosity to look for organics, which does not equal life. I think that's something that gets misinterpreted by the media quite a bit because we did discover organics on Mars with curiosity, but that's just an ingredient for life. It's not a byproduct of life. There, there are organics in asteroids flying around in the solar system, but there's certainly as far as we know, nothing living on them. Um, and then we took the next step with perseverance to look for signs of ancient life. So uh, the thing that we're missing right now is we don't have an instrument on any of the rovers that can definitively say that the thing that we're looking at is life, because for that, we need like a DNA sequencer. You need to be able to actually look at the thing and say, this is life. And we learned this the hard way back in 1996, when there was all this news over this Allen Hills meteorite that was found in Antarctica, where it was initially reported there were some micro fossils in it. And then after more analysis, it was revealed like, oh, this is actually a structure that forms from a geologic process that probably doesn't occur on Earth, or if it does, it's not very common. But because of the, the composition of the, the rocks on Mars, basically, uh, it can form these structures. So it was kind of this false, like, hey, we thought we found life. Oh, wait, actually, no. But from that, the whole field of astrobiology started, which is kind of cool. Like, what are the origins of life? What does life look like? What are the byproducts that life leaves behind on Earth and beyond? So um, that would be like the next step. We need to actually get a DNA sequencer that is small enough to fit on a rover platform and then send it somewhere where we might find evidence. The downside there is if we send it and we don't find life, 
like I was saying before, that's, that doesn't mean that life isn't there. It could just mean life is not in the specific spot that we are able to analyze with the rover. So I feel like that might actually be an experiment that they hold off on intentionally until humans are there because Mm -hmm. they don't want that false negative or that negative perception from the public of, oh, we looked for life and we didn't find it. So why don't, why do we need to keep spending any money on Mars? It's obviously, there's obviously no life there. The, I suppose the biochemistry could also just be completely different, right? How, how do you know what tests to do on, you know, if you if your if the genetic information isn't encoded in what we would view as DNA, uh, then you're in trouble, right? Yeah, and I think that this is something that is going to plague us for. Oh, that's probably a terrible word to use in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> it's something that's going to be a problem, I think, as we look for life because we only have a sample size of one, right? We know what life looks like on this one planet under the conditions that exist here, but we don't necessarily know that that that's going to be the same anywhere else in the solar system. So that could be tricky. And we we also learned again, the hard way with the Viking missions that uh, we had some experience on there to look for signs of metabolism in the dirt. And there were, some negative results and some positive results. And so this caused a lot of controversy because there was like one particular um, experiment called the labeled release experiment that was looking for basically if there was some metabolism going on with like microbial life in the dirt, it would release this byproduct. And we saw that uh, and that confused people. They're like, okay, so maybe there is something going on here. But it was another thing where we didn't, because we hadn't landed on Mars before, we didn't know that the Martian dirt had a bunch of this material called perchlorates in it, which is a kind of a toxic salt. Um, And so now many, many years later, they were able to say, okay, we know that there's perchlorates in the dirt. This reaction was probably from the temperature that we did it at and the the reactants that we used and it caused this false positive. But we, we had no way of knowing that at the time because we didn't have enough data. So but there are still people that hold on and say, no, that was life. And we just destroyed it because we heated up the sample too high. Or, you know, we did this other thing that would have killed it if it was a sample that we had taken on earth. So it, it can be really tricky. I guess that's actually how you would do the experiment, right? You you take out a sample, you look for some chemistry, and then you irradiate it to kill whatever is there and then see if you get the same chemistry after the irradiation. Is that is that the, or, they, or the, do they heat it up? What, what do they do? Yeah, uh, I, I try to remember the specifics, but I think they, they heated it up and then there was the, yeah, the control sample and then the, the sample that they were looking at to see what came out of it when they caused a certain type of reaction. One of the things that I've always been a bit curious about is, you know, so it seemed for the longest time when I was younger that we were searching for water on Mars and that was sort of an open question. But now I, you see these beautiful images of the surface of Mars, I guess, taken from satellites where you see these uh, ice caps, I suppose, on on both poles uh, of what I presume is water ice. You know, how is it that we can have these beautiful images of huge tracks of ice and before not, not have seen anything? I think that was probably like a lack of communication from the science community to the general public. I mean, the ice caps on Mars have been visible from telescopes since like the 1700s. They're very, if if Mars is close enough, you can see it with like a backyard telescope. They're pretty obvious. Um, I don't think we knew specifically that it was water ice until probably the 
20s or so when we started getting spectroscopic data from large Earth-based mm-hmm. telescopes. But we could at least see, oh, there's there there's what looks like ice caps and we can see clouds, we can see storms. So it's, it's kind of imp- impressive the amount of knowledge that we had about Mars and its weather and its surface from very rudimentary telescopes from people like Huygens and um, some of the astronomers that came shortly after him. But this question comes up a lot. We're like, how do we keep discovering water on Mars? I thought we already knew it was there. And it's usually discovering it in some other fashion. So before we knew there were ice caps, then we knew, oh, there's actually water vapor in the atmosphere um, and little tiny water ice crystals. There's this active weather system. It doesn't rain. It kind of snows, but only like in the atmosphere, it doesn't hit the ground. There's frost that we can see that kind of expands in winter and then disappears again in the summer, just like you would see in satellite images of the earth, like in either hemisphere, when it's winter, you'll see the snow line come way down and go back up. Same thing on Mars, but with frost. But we've been looking for things like um, minerals that have water in their structure that tell us that those minerals interacted with water that might not be there anymore in terms of like an ocean or a lake or a river. Um, or places where there's water that's accessible for us to use as humans down the line. So we probably would never send a human mission to like the margins of the northern polar cap of Mars, for example, because it's really cold. It's dark for part of the year. So solar power is not great. And the weather is really bad there. Um, There's like constant dust storms that just spiral spiral around the edge of the cap for huge chunks of the year. Um, It's part of why the Phoenix lander didn't last very long compared to all of our other Mars missions that lasted for many years longer than they were expected. We knew Phoenix would die pretty quickly because this North Polar Hood, as we call it, the, the clouds just come down to like a certain latitude and you're just blanketed in them for months at a time. So we'd have to figure out, okay, where is there ice that's buried under the surface at a place that's still convenient to land weather-wise and temperature-wise, but the ice is close enough to the surface that we could feasibly mine it. So we've been looking Mm -hmm. for a lot of those deposits and we found them, which is cool, thanks to radar data where we can actually peer underneath the ground. Um, So I, I think originally before we knew there was so much water on Mars, the thought in general was, oh, the big limiting factor for humans to expand beyond Earth is going to be water. That's what we need to survive. But now we're finding there's water everywhere. There's water at the South Pole of the Moon. There's water on Mercury. There's water in the atmospheres of a lot of the gas giants. There's frozen oceans under the surfaces of some of the satellites of Jupiter and Saturn. So water may not, there's even water in some of the asteroids like tied up in these minerals. So the limiting factor is probably not water. It's maybe more like oxygen or radiation environment or some kind of inert gas for us to breathe. You know, we always talk about Mm -hmm. oxygen in the air, but 70 something percent of our atmosphere is nitrogen. (laughs) Like that's really important. There's very little nitrogen on Mars. This doesn't come up very often. But I guess any nitrogen that you have is easily recyclable because we don't actually process it, do we? Yeah, you just need some kind of inert gas. I think on Mars... uh, People have suggested that you can use argon instead because it's it's just not reactive, but it adds to the, the air pressure mm-hmm. around us. How do you protect? So these big storm, these big dust storms that people talk about on Mars. How do you protect the drones uh, during these storms? Are there covers that cover? <laughs> what, what, what do you do to stop uh, damage to the drones? 
Uh, so there's not a lot you can do. Uh, we're very proactive in terms of we try not to land somewhere where we know there are a lot of storms. Um, the one nice thing about Mars not having oceans is that the weather is really predictable and repeatable. So we know kind of like in the U.S., we know when hurricane season is, we know when tornado season is. <laughs> Those have been changing a little bit thanks to climate change, but in general, we know like, okay, these few months are when tornadoes happen. We can't necessarily predict if they will happen or where specifically, but we know, okay, this part of the country tends to experience tornadoes in this part of the year. It's exactly the same thing on Mars. The storms happen in the same places at the same times of year every year. And so we can say, well, if we know there's a place where these global, not global, regional dust tracks go through for these storms, we probably wouldn't land anything there. Um, we also try to stay away from any places that are, yeah, just kind of unsafe in general. So we've biased it from that standpoint, but you still get these global storms every once in a while or the occasional regional storm that might pass over a rover. So usually what we'll do is the, the biggest danger from them isn't necessarily the storm itself. It, it's not like the Martian where you've got like things flying through the air and it's going to like impale the rover and then it will die. It's really more that the dust is in the air and for the solar powered rovers specifically, it cuts down the power level. So I always keep this snow globe on my desk if anybody watches a video version of this. So when the dust comes through, it lofts all this dust into the atmosphere Oh, my little Mars tipped over inside of it. <laughs> oh, no. Well, that's the first time that's happened. Uh, well, it this little fine grain dust just hangs in the air for weeks or months at a time when you get these global storms. And then just like a snow globe, it'll eventually settle out, but that can take a really long time to happen. So what we'll do is any of the really sensitive instruments like cameras where you don't want to get dust in the optics, we do have covers to close them off. Um, and then for the solar powered rovers, you want to make sure that they're not drawing a lot of power so that the battery might die if it's not mm -hmm. getting enough charge to the, the solar panels. So for um, like Opportunity, for example, when the big dust storm hit that unfortunately eventually killed the rover, it was because of loss of power. It wasn't that the dust itself damaged the rover per se. It was just that there was so much dust, the batteries couldn't recharge after the storm finally cleared. But for the nuclear-powered rovers like Perseverance and, and Curiosity, that's much less of a problem. Power-wise, they're just generating their own power, so that's fine. But you do want to protect the equipment. So anything that has a dust cover um, or any inlets, like where we're taking in samples, you'd want to close the covers on those and you just kind of hunker down and hope for the best. But the storms are so big compared to the size of the rover and how fast they can move, you can't like go and hide from them or anything. Yeah, this is something I'd wondered about. So the pre the pressure is so low that you don't have. Uh, so the in the marsh in the movie, you saw like really intense uh, storms that were buffeting the uh, module he was living in. But that's not the picture. It's really uh, because of the low pressure. It's just very very fine uh, mist of dust. Let's say. Yeah, the dust is probably like uh, like baby powder or talcum powder. That's probably the best best description I could think of. So imagine a bunch of that just kind of hanging in the air in the way. It's certainly going to be blowing around, but the air pressure is so low, there's not a lot of oomph behind it. So it's just like uh, 
more of like a mist or a fog of dust. You definitely wouldn't want to be outside in it. You don't want to be trying to walk around in it or drive around it in the case of the rovers, but it's not going to pierce through your suit or like pick up an antenna and impale you with it. It's not going to rip pieces off the rover. Um, it's just not that powerful. In terms of what the rovers can do, how do, how is it that we know the age of Mars? Do the, do the rovers carry sort of um, devices that allow for radioactive measurements, like dating, or how do we make our measurements of, of or how do we date things in general on Mars? That's a really good question. So part of it is we know how old all the planets are because they all formed at the same time in the history of the solar system, at least that's what we think we know based on samples from the moon. And we have some samples of Mars in the form of Martian meteorites that we found in Antarctica. And we know they came from Mars because they have little gas bubbles trapped in them that match the composition of the Martian atmosphere. We also have pieces of asteroids that have fallen down on the earth. And so we can date those as well. So we've, we've done dating of pieces that we have here, but we don't have anything on the rovers that can do that. So a lot of what we end up doing on Mars is relative dating. And so we can definitively say, well, we think this is older than this because like this layer of rock is sitting on top of this other layer. And that's kind of like geology 101, unless something weird has happened, like weird tectonic activity that's like, you know, changed the orientation of your layers. Like sometimes you might look at the side of a mountain and you've got layers that definitely had to have been put in place like this, but now they're at like a huge angle. Um, something on top of it, of, of another layer of rock is probably younger. We also do what's called um, crater dense crater dating. So we we count the density of craters on a surface in a specific area, and then the, look at the size of those craters. And then we have like a essentially a depth diameter plot that you can make and say, okay, um, or sorry, a density diameter plot. So how many craters do you have in this area with a diameter of X? Because we know that the in the old in the olden days of the solar system there was a lot of stuff flying around and just smashing into planets all the time so you had a lot of craters and you had a lot of large craters but then as the planets formed and they were you know picking up all this debris you had fewer and fewer asteroids and you had fewer large asteroids that were just chaotically moving around so as you move forward in time you have fewer craters and fewer large craters um so we assume that if you have a surface that's just sitting out and there are very few craters on it or very few large craters, that has to be younger than a surface that has a bunch of really big craters on it. The caveat here on Mars specifically is that there are huge chunks of Mars that have actually been completely buried and then exhumed. So you could have a surface that is, is like new to being exposed to the air, but the surface itself might've been in place like 3 billion years ago. And this is what we're actually exploring in Gale Crater with Curiosity. This is a five and a half kilometer uh, tall crater, essentially, that was filled and buried with sediments from lakes and then wind. And then it was completely unburied. And as those sediments were eroding away from wind, most likely, it left this mountain behind just in the middle of the crater. But those layers that make up the mountain used to fill the entire crater. That's a lot of stuff that just eroded away. <laughs> and that's a big mystery of Mars. It's like, how, how did all of this stuff erode and where did it go? Like, is wind that efficient if it's the only thing acting on a surface for 3 billion plus years? 
it's teaching us a lot about wind, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> or could it just be an indication that there was uh, liquid water for longer than we think? Or um, Maybe. It, it looks very much at least like in the case of Gale Crater that it is mostly wind that has eroded these layers away. So even though some of the layers were put there by a lake, so there was a lake in the crater, and then as the lake evaporated away, it left these layers of different kinds of salts behind, basically, and clays. And then at some point after all of that dried up, the wind put more layers of stuff on top of those layers. Uh, and so it's kind of cool, like the mountain that we're driving up with the rover, the bottom half has like all this evidence of water. There's like little canyons and channels cut in it. And then there's a very distinct separation between that and the top part of the mountain where there's no evidence of interaction with water whatsoever. So this is one of the main reasons that we actually went there because this mountain looks like it spans the transition between wet Mars and dry Mars. Unfortunately, the rover will probably never make it to that transition point because it's very high up the mountain and uh, the wheels will probably stop working long before it ever got to that point or the nuclear battery would die. How, how long was Mars warm and wet for? And, and was it long enough? Did it overlap, for example, with the time on Earth where we had a very basic life? Yes. So this is actually really cool. Um, we know that the conditions for life were the, were the same at the same time on Earth and Mars. I, I shouldn't say we know. We think. It looks like warm and wet Mars was at the same time that early life was arising on the Earth. So if there's a certain time span that you need for life to arise, like maybe the time period that it took for life to show up on Earth, if that would be the same for Mars, you might expect to see some kind of happy microbial life that managed to come up during then. But then maybe when you transition to like the cold, dry Mars we see today, whatever was there, maybe it just wasn't able to adapt and it died off. Um, whereas we, we didn't really have that harsh of a transition on Earth even though we did have some mass extinctions and some ice ages and things like that. Mars, you know, never came back out of that. It's still in this, you know, cold polar desert period. So any, it might just be long enough that anything that was alive before just died off. And now there's nothing there and it's very sad. <laughs> so how did this transit, why did this transition happen? I mean, it's much smaller than Earth, so it doesn't have the same sort of atmosphere that we have. But why was it that it was able to be warm back then and now it's just, sort of dead in comparison. So the thought is that since Mars is so much smaller than the Earth, it's only about a third of the size, it, the heat from accretion, so the heat that was generated from the planet actually forming in the first place, and then the core itself, which generates a lot of heat, uh, has all essentially dissipated away. There might be a little bit left. Um, we, we haven't gotten any measurements of the heat coming out of Mars. We were hoping to do that with the InSight lander, and then the heat probe instrument did work as planned. Um, so that eventually caused the magnetic field of Mars to die off. So on Earth, our magnetic field protects us from, you know, a lot of radiation and the solar wind that's coming off of the sun. Um, and that's generated by our liquid core sloshing around. On Mars, if the core has solidified because it's cooled off so much that there's, there's no more of those reactions going on to keep it liquid, it's lost its magnetic field. And so the thought was, that the atmosphere has just been slowly stripped away by the solar wind. And so as the atmosphere got thinner, it couldn't retain the water. It was, certainly couldn't retain heat as much, and it couldn't retain the water. So a lot of it either escaped into space or went into the ground and is still there today as ice. And, and we've seen that with the radar data. And thanks to um, 
we have a couple of atmospheric missions now, MAVEN, which has been at Mars since 2014 from NASA, and then the HOPE mission from the United Arab Emirates, which got there um, almost exactly a year ago. Uh, they are kind of working in tandem to understand that the loss of Mars's atmosphere. And we can see now with MAVEN that it's something like 100 grams a day, I think, is, is the loss rate of the Martian atmosphere just by the solar wind blowing it away. Huh. If Mars and Venus had been exchanged, so let, let's say Mars is where Venus is now, their orbits are exchanged, would we have had two Earths? That's an interesting question. Maybe. I think the question there would be what happened on Venus to turn it into this sulfuric acid hellscape. And I, I don't think we really know yet. Um, well, it's a lot closer to the sun, right? Yeah, but uh, I'm not sure that that fully accounts for this this crazy runaway greenhouse that's happened there. Like there must have been something in its geologic past to cause this to happen. And uh, it also doesn't look like it's had plate tectonics, which appears to have a more important role in the recycling of water in planetary systems than we realized before. Like right now, as far as we can tell, the only planet in the whole solar system that has had plate tectonics is the Earth. So if you don't have a way to recycle water in your system, it could be something where it's like a finite resource that is eventually lost to space or boils away mm -hmm. in the case of Venus being really hot. Um, but I, I'm not a Venus expert whatsoever, so I could be totally wrong here. <laughs> so, okay, so Earth is the only planet with plate tectonics. Why does Mars have volcanoes then? So Mars's volcanoes are hotspot volcanoes, kind of like Hawaii. You've got like a spot in the mantle where these plumes are coming up and they cause a lot of um, like magmatic volcanic activity in, a, in one specific spot. So the reason that you see multiple like islands in Hawaii, for example, is the hotspot stays in one place, but the, the plates are moving on top of it. So you'll have volcanic activity for a bit. And then as it moves, like the island kind of moves off of the top of that hotspot. So you'll have like one really active spot and then it tapers off moving away from it. Um, it's the same thing on Mars. So you had these, what we think were just really large mantle plumes that formed these very specific volcanoes. And we can tell by the shape as well. So the shape of these hotspot Hawaiian-esque volcanoes are very, these broad, we call them shield volcanoes. They're really broad and kind of flat, which sounds weird when you're talking about a mountain, but compared to a more, like if you think of volcanoes, you probably think of like tall pointy things like Mount Etna mm -hmm. or, um, you know, Mount Rainier or something like that. Those are the type of volcanoes that you get from plate tectonics where you've got like one plate moving beneath another and it like pushes up the, the top plate and then forms these mountains. We don't see any kind of mountains like that on other planets. The only mountains we see are these hotspot type volcanoes or mountains in the sense that when you have really big impact craters, the rims and the crap that they shoot all over the place, the ejecta, those can be big enough that it essentially forms a mountain range. Is there like sort of really interesting geomorphology on Mars because it doesn't have plate tectonics that we just don't see on Earth? I mean, there's certainly a lot of interesting geomorphology on Mars. Uh, I, I wouldn't say any of it was necessarily attributed to not having plate tectonics, but there are things that we see on Mars that we don't have here. Um, I think one really good example is there's this stuff called chaos terrain. Um, this is, we think this is stuff that formed where basically you had like a giant underground aquifer or maybe a, a 
giant lava, like a magma patch, essentially. And then that catastrophically released to the surface in some some fashion. And then since you've lost all of the material that was holding up the ground, the ground on top of it just collapses and you have this huge jumbled mess of blocks all over the place. We, we don't really see any equivalent to that on Earth, especially at the scale that we see on Mars. And that's kind of a mystery for Mars in general, too. A lot of things on Mars are much bigger than they are on Earth. The volcanoes are massive. There's um, polygons that form on the ground in the higher latitudes that we see in the Arctic as well and the Antarctic due to freeze thaw in the ground. Um, but on Mars, they're like 10 times the size. And some of this could be due to lower gravity, but it doesn't explain all of it. So like, how do things get so big on Mars? We're, we're not entirely sure in a lot of cases. Could it be, so for the for the case of volcanoes, could it just be because you said previously uh, vol- volcanoes in Hawaii, they sort of move along with plate tectonics, but here you just have for, for all time in the same space, uh, same place. Is that the reason why? That's probably the case in terms of the volcanoes, yeah. And then that spot would have to be active for a really long time. Mm-hmm. So maybe that could actually help age uh, how long Mars is. Do we, are there still active volcanoes now? No, we've been looking at all the volcanoes for you know, decades at this point, and it doesn't look like anything has erupted in probably somewhere between 10, 10 and 100 million years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> do, do you think there's any chance uh, we'll be able to terraform Mars? I mean, there have been recent discussions about this. Is this something that do you think is sensible and worth discussing, or it's just so far in the future that... Uh... I think... It's really far in the future, um, like any time in the next probably like few hundred years, unless I'm just underestimating the pace of technological advancement. It's just it's going to be so much easier to live inside isolated, you know, communities and bubbles, essentially. Um, and it's also going to depend on like how many people you're sending there. If you've only got a hmm. couple hundred people living on Mars, it's not going to make sense to try and change the whole planet. I think we need to focus more on Earth right now. Like, essentially, we need to terraform Earth. We're making it uninhabitable, so we need to figure out how to terraform it back to a spot that's good for us. Um, and maybe then when we figure that out, we could try to apply it to Mars. But I, a lot of the things that have been proposed, like setting off nuclear bombs to melt the polar cap or, like, smashing comets into the surface to bring more water to it, like, we, I mean... I guess we have the ability to set off a bomb. We don't have the ability to like throw comets at Mars yet. So we're, we're talking like way out in the future. And there's a lot of reasons to not detonate nuclear bombs on Mars. <laughs> We've seen those on Earth. So let's not do that. <laughs> so, you, so you've been working with the rovers, but also uh, you're involved with uh, satellites imaging the surface of Mars. How, how well is, how, how good is the coverage first off? So we have all of the surface of Mars imaged at six meter resolution in terms of the highest map. The highest resolution images we have in general are 25 centimeters. That probably covers, at this point, somewhere between five and 10% of the planet. I think when I left working on Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has the highest resolution camera, they were at about 5% and that was almost 10, oh my gosh. Yeah, 10 years ago. (laughs) Um, So, Now it's, uh, but we do get like repeat global imaging with this instrument called the Mars Color Imager or MARSI. It takes almost a daily global mosaic of the whole planet to monitor weather patterns. And that's one kilometer resolution. So it's not super high, but it's enough that we can watch the clouds move and we can see how the polar caps change. And um, 
we'll look for really big new impact craters with that, but they're generally not that big. So you need something like that six meter, uh, that's called the context camera. You need that to find the impact craters. What, what's the limitation? Why is it that we've only got 5% coverage with the high resolution? Is it uh, the data download? What, what's the limitation there? Um, it's a combination of things. The big one is the bandwidth. So the images, obviously, if you have a 25 centimeter image, the file size of that is quite large. And trying to send that back from Mars can be really difficult. The, the data rate is highly variable depending on how far away Mars and Earth are from each other. And you only get a very limited amount of space that you can use on the deep space network, which is the set of satellite dishes on the Earth that takes all the data back from every mission that is beyond Earth orbit. Um, so you're, you're fighting for capacity on those dishes, essentially. And there's only three locations of them in the entire world. So there's one in California, there's uh, one in Australia, and oh gosh, I think the third one is in Spain. I just totally had a brain failure. I, I believe the third one is in Spain. Um, and when your mission is like new and shiny, you get to use the bigger satellite dishes in those. So you get a higher data rate, but then when your mission is older and like the public cares about it less, you tend to get relegated to the smaller dishes. So there's like 34 meter dishes and 70 meter dishes. So if you get the 70 meter dish, you get way more data back than the 34 meter dish. Um, so it's really sad. How much are we talking? Uh, I can't remember the, the actual data volume difference, but it's significant. Um, like we, I was on the mission when we transferred between dishes at one point and it was like really exciting to get to use the big dishes. And then when they moved it down, it was like, Oh, we can take like half the number of images that we could before in a single day. And even then, like for the context camera, when Mars was close to earth, we could take two, 300 pictures a day. And then when Mars was the farthest point from the earth, we could take maybe three images a day. So it's, it's really, really extreme. Um, huh. the other limitation with the high resolution imaging is just the footprint size of the data. So for the six meter images, they were 30 kilometers by uh, 30 kilometers wide and up to 150 kilometers long, generally speaking, but the high resolution ones are like one kilometer by five kilometers. So you're, you're getting these little postage stamp pieces of the surface and you're not necessarily taking a new image every time you, you shoot the surface. You might be monitoring certain areas. Like basically anytime you're flying over one of the rovers, you're, you're gonna be imaging the rover to get a status mm -hmm. update. That means that you're limiting your coverage around the rover because you're using your, your limited space on that like one postage stamp, which means I can't take another postage stamp here because there's like a, a time difference that we need to like read out the data before it can take another picture. So. For the moon, for example, though, we can take like, we have a camera orbiting the moon that does 50 centimeter imaging. And if it hasn't already completed a global map, it probably will because we can send so much more data back from the moon just from like a, a data rate standpoint. But mm -hmm. I doubt we'll ever get like a 25 centimeter mosaic of Mars. It's just not practical. That's sort of surprising. So we have we could be receiving a lot more data from all the different satellites all the different rovers all the different missions but we're not simply because we don't have the bandwidth yeah like the mars reconnaissance orbiter could acquire something like 10 times more data than it's physically able to send back mostly because of limitations here on earth if we had more dishes and we had more large dishes we would get so much more data back but it, it's like an infrastructure thing right infrastructure isn't 
sexy. So it's hard to sell investment in it. Like, you know, our, our highways in the United States are crumbling apart because no one wants to pay for them. It's people don't want to invest money in the satellite dishes because there's way more excitement around building a new mission. But if you don't have the infrastructure on the ground to support that, you're just hampering the amount of science that you can be doing because, you know, we're just limited. And there's the stations themselves really need more funding to just stay operational and and keep everything up and running. So it's, uh, it's a huge limitation that we have. And it's really unfortunate. That sounds sort of insane, because in comparison to setting up a new satellite or a new mission to Mars, say, how how costly is it to keep a, a ground observatory running? Is it uh, you That's- know is is this if if we were gonna get the most of it out of our dollar, would it make sense to build another <laughs> another couple of uh, receivers on Earth rather than send up more missions? You know, if we're throwing away ninety percent of the data we could be collecting. I think that's a really good question. I don't know what the like annual operational cost of the deep space network is, but uh, certainly, again, my bias as not being a, a politician who decides how to fund these things, I, I would think that you know just taking even a little bit of money away from something like the space station so that we could build one more set of ground stations would just increase the amount of data we can get from every space mission by like a huge amount and this this disconnect happens all over the place it, it came up actually a, a couple of years ago i guess a few years now at this point there's um the national academy of sciences has these meetings that are called like the decadal surveys where they look at what we should be doing in the next 10 years in astronomy and astrophysics and planetary science and earth science and things like that and I was sitting in on the astronomy and astrophysics ones, and there was this discussion of all of this funding to build, um, you know, new observatories and funding for observatories in general. And then the scientists on the other side were saying, well, okay, it's great that you want to build more of these things, but you're not providing any funding to scientists to actually analyze the data that's coming out of them. So how about we like hold our horses on building a bunch of new stuff and pay people to actually work with the data that we already have or the or just add more money to the budget so that there are people that are working with this observatory to begin with. So there's always this focus on like the next cool new thing without enough consideration on the back end of what it takes to support that in the first place. Do you think that's actually one of the reasons why a mission, a manned mission to Mars would actually make a lot of sense? I mean, that would draw a lot of attention. It's much more sexy than a lot of other things that we could be doing, right? That might itself fuel uh, missions that otherwise wouldn't be funded potentially. Yeah. I mean, it's probably a lot easier in the grand scheme of something where the budget's probably going to be like, you know, 50 to a hundred billion dollars to stuff in a little bit to say, oh, hey, we need like 50 million to really upgrade the deep space network so we can communicate with these folks because we need to be talking to them at all times. We don't want these huge comms blackouts or anything like that um i guess there's not really blackouts that's why there's three places on the surface so that at any given time it's you can see the sky with one of them but you know when humans are involved it's obviously way more important to have redundant infrastructure and things like that so yeah i think a great way to sort of shore up a lot of the the things that needed money before and we just haven't been investing in them so your job was, so you were working, was it the context camera you were working with? 
Um, so I worked, yeah, I worked on context camera and Marcy on Mar- specifically for Marge Reconnaissance Orbiter. And your job was to select which pictures were going to be taken of the surface, right? At, at some point. Yeah. So, um, we had software that would plot like for the, the coming week, all of the orbits. So what we knew we would be passing over at any given time. And then from there you would figure out, okay, what, what are we flying over? What time of year is it? Like, do I want to shoot this area? in terms of the weather at this point of year or the shadows, or um, are we flying over something that's really high priority or we're trying to get like three dimensional coverage. So I wanna like tilt the can- the spacecraft at a certain angle. So um, I, yeah, I would just come into my office, put on my headphones and pick like all the framing and stuff and the lighting conditions and the angle for pictures from Mars it was pretty cool. <laughs> But so how much control, like, did you have people approaching you saying, look, I have this science mission and and I need imagery of this, that, and that, or was it really just you have free range to decide? It's a lot of power for one person to have complete control over this, (laughs) this, the imaging satellites over Mars. So for most of the other cameras, what you just described is the case there, like the high rise camera, for example, which is that 25 centimeter imager they have a a way for people to submit targets and they can put in justification and priorities and all this other kind of stuff. Um, And it's really important because they're, they're so limited in in what they can send back and like the size of the image, like I was mentioning before for the context camera, since the pictures are so big, we're basically just trying to provide background mapping for this higher resolution image. That's why it's called the context Mm -hmm. camera. It's the context for the high rise images. So we did have a database of, targets where um, people could submit stuff if they wanted to. They didn't do it very often outside of the people on the team. And so from that, we would decide, like, you know, I could go in and say, hey, I want to mosaic this crater. And one of my team members could say, I want a mosaic of this part of the planet. And then we could put in like a priority number and stuff like that. So in terms of picking the database of targets, that was a communal effort of a handful of people. But then like, when it was your week to actually control the camera, there's no, there wasn't really any input from anybody else. It's just like, okay, I'm using my, my knowledge and my experience and my situational awareness of like the time of year that it is on Mars and what that means for any given place. I will use that to decide what we should be taking pictures of. Um, so every picture that you look at from Mars Constance Orbiter really, other than for Marcy, which is just a background imager, like a person intentionally took that image and there's like a lot of reasoning behind why it was placed there. So you've take, you've been analyzing for years, the surface of Mars. Is there anything in particular that sort of you were the first to see that, you know, any sort of uh, dynamics on the surface or any features that uh, you're particularly proud of or that no one you had any idea of before and that you sort of were the first to spot in any of these images? Yeah, I actually, I wrote a paper once on this massive channel system that I found associated with, it's a really big impact crater in the Northern Plains of Mars called LEO. Um, And we hadn't really done a lot of imaging north of the crater because it just goes off into these flat kind of featureless Northern Plains of Mars. But when, when we had high data rate period, when Mars is super close to Earth, when you can take a couple hundred images a day, it's like a bonanza. You're like, oh man, okay. Our images had to be separated by like 15 seconds in time for the camera to like read out 
and then like be able to take another image. And it was hard to actually use all of the bandwidth available to us just from a standpoint of like, I can't take images one right after the other. Um, and we had a bunch of extra space. So I was like, oh, there's, we didn't take any pictures in the plains. Let's start imaging the Northern plains. And I found this huge channel and I was like, oh, this is interesting. Let's take some more pictures around it and see what's going on. And then I found a bunch more of them and they just hadn't been visible in older images because it's in that part of March where the weather is really bad for a big chunk of the year. But part of my job had been to look at all of the bad areas of Mars weather-wise and figure out what is the window of time that that place is clear. And so I had a notebook where I would write like, Argyre Planitia, Elsabes 80 to 140 or something like that. So then like Elsabes is solar longitude. So it's kind of like the date on Mars. Um, mm -hmm. So I just had a whole list of like, of all the crappy places, what are like the one month or the two weeks that we can actually image this spot? So that was pretty cool. It gave you like this really intimate relationship with like, oh, I can tell you exactly when like this part of Mars is going to be cloudy and this is dust storm season over here. Um, it's not something that a lot of people have the opportunity or need to do because usually you're focused on like one specific area and you're just studying the data that is coming to you that someone has already targeted from a, from a camera. Um, but it, this is a long story, I guess. <laughs> it turned out that the, all of these channels were just all around this gigantic impact crater. And so the conclusion from that was, well, this, this crater must have released a bunch of groundwater when it formed. And it just flowed all over the Northern Plains and carved these massive channels. Um, and it was just kind of amazing that it was like so obvious in these images, but we had missed it because there had not been intentional imaging in that place when the weather was good enough for us to see what was going on. So that was pretty cool. And I found a lot of new impact craters and some new landslides, like places where we had an image before and like nothing was there. And then we had an image a few weeks or months later and you could see a new crater or see a new landslide. So that was pretty cool. You're like, wow, I'm the first human in human history that has ever seen this thing on the surface of Mars. Like, this is really cool. <laughs> Do you get to name them? Um, so you don't get to pick the name, but there, you can like submit a form to this group called the, the IAU that like picks names for stuff. Um, and then they decide what the name is going to be. So I, I named some craters, but I didn't actually get to pick the name. Like the IAU had their list and I suggested names to them and they didn't pick any of them, which was really disappointing. Cause I, I kept like a theme with all of them. Uh, like we had a couple of craters on Mars that were, places where we'd seen new landslides back in like the early 2000s from Mars Global Surveyor. And those had both been named after cities on earth where they were affected by large landslides. So I tried to keep up that theme for these new landslide craters. Um, and I did a lot of research because like the, the naming scheme is if you have a crater on Mars that's smaller than 60 kilometers in diameter, it has to be named after a town on earth with a population of less than, it's either 100,000 or 120,000 people. Um, so I went and looked for cities that were affected by landslides that met this requirements. And I like messed up something on the form. I like didn't put the source of the data correctly. And so they like rejected all the names and picked their own and they had nothing to do with landslides. They were just random towns around the world. And I was like, oh, I put in so much effort to keep this theme. It's like, <laughs> come on, can you, can you just go back and like check the box that apparently I didn't know I was supposed to check or something. Meanwhile, there parties at the office saying you know i named this uh crater the other day yeah i gave it this <laughs> I mean, these are the same people that like demoted pluto so 
you know, no respect. Oh, for you're these guys. you're a Pluto lover. You're you think it should still be a planet? Yeah, I I mean, probably for nostalgia's sake more than anything. Like, I, I just gotta hold on to that. <laughs> So is there anyone who knows the surface of Mars more intimately than you? Like you, it sounds like you're one of the people who's spent the most time just analyzing the surface. I would say like at a planetary scale as a whole, I'm fairly confident that I'm the only person that has looked at the entire surface at high resolution, like on a regular basis. Um, Just because not only was it my job for multiple years, but at some point, when we had like a four month long safe mode for the spacecraft where we were worried it was gonna die and we'd all lose our jobs. Um, I had a lot of spare time on my hands. So I went back and I looked at all the historical data that we had collected before I came into the mission. Cause I came into MRO, Mars Constance Orbiter at the be- kind of near the beginning of the first extended mission. So we had like the whole first Mars year of data that I hadn't seen just because I didn't work on the mission. And so I went back and looked through all of that. So my goal was like, okay, I want to be able to definitively say that I've looked at every single context camera image. Um, and now I can say that. So, and then even after I left, um, anytime there would be like a release of data, I would go back into this program called JMARS that is just this free program anybody can use to browse NASA data because it's publicly available. Um, and just kind of go through and step through the images after that. So, um, I have a very good broad scale relationship with Mars. I'm certainly, I'm not like an expert on every field of Mars. So like, I can't tell you specifics about like every volcano. Um, my, my specific expertise is in gullies, which are like a specific type of feature on Mars that are like these little landslides. Um, but I can certainly tell you like, you know, show me where some cool volcanoes are or like what is the weather like in this part of Mars or you know have you seen any particularly interesting channels compared to other channels like um yeah it's I I certainly know my way globally around Mars way better than I do on earth (laughs) (laughs) that was my next question it's such a bizarre skill set you know if let's say for example heaven forbid you end up outside of research having to get a job somewhere and that's you know that's what you put on your cv i know mars better than (laughs) any other person on the planet it's a very random skill that's for sure i mean now i work for a commercial earth observing company and that was my thought when i initially found out about planet the company i work for now i was like wow this company seems super cool i really want to work there but why would they hire an expert in like martian landslides Um, but the skills you learn are really transferable, at least for Mars, because the surface of Mars geologically is very similar to earth and operating cameras on any kind of satellite is pretty much the same, regardless of what that camera is pointed at. So I had a lot of experience with like mission operations, remote sensing in general, camera systems specifically, because I also worked on like, um, designing science requirements for future missions. Since I was working for a company that was building cameras for Mars missions, um, they built the Juno cam, which is at Jupiter right now, and they built some of the lunar cameras. So they've, they've done a lot of different things. Um, so I just had to figure out how to reframe my skill set into a, something that was relevant to an Earth observing company, and it worked. So that's pretty great. But um, it's certainly strange to have a like literally having spent over a decade just looking at pictures of Mars all the time. Now looking at pictures of earth, I'm like, wow, the earth is really cloudy all the time. And there's just evidence of humans <laughs> everywhere. Like regardless of how remote the image is, you're like, Oh, there's a road or there's a building. Like it, 
I guess you don't really think about how cloudy it is all the time here because the clouds are above you. And on Mars, the clouds rarely get in the way of satellite imaging, even if they're there. You can see them, but they're so thin, you see through them. And here, I feel like half the time I go to look at a picture of something, I'm like, oh, God, God damn it, there's like clouds in the way. <laughs> Have, have you caught any, you know, every now and again, you hear of like an ice shelf breaking off or any of these massive signs of climate change. Have you been able to capture any of these personally and, and seen, how, how long have you been working in the current job for? Um, About two and a half years now. So not long enough to see big, ch- I, I suppose if you were working for 10 years, you might actually see, or 20 years, 30 years, you might actually see differences uh, over time climate-wise. But have you seen any of these sort of individual events that stick out? Actually, yeah. Um, that's the thing when it comes to climate change, especially in the Arctic, you don't need decades to see these changes anymore. Um, last summer, last summer, gosh, the last two years are blurry together. It was either last summer or the summer before, um, there was a collapse of the last intact Arctic ice sheet in Canada. And we managed to capture it with our satellites. And it was it was pretty striking because um, we have uh, over 200 satellites in orbit right now, and they kind of orbit in this big line scanner. So they're just constantly taking pictures anytime they're over land. And when they get up to the Arctic, they kind of, they get really close together. So we'll get multiple passes per day. And when uh, NASA found out about the collapse, they went to go look at data from their satellite and it was cloudy. So they actually emailed me and they were like, hey, did you manage to get an image of this by chance? And I went and I looked and we got four satellite passes that day. Three of them were cloudy and one of them was clear. And we had multiple passes from the day before. So we were actually able to constrain the time of the collapse of the sheet to a 10 hour time span, which is kind of unheard of in like in a place so remote where there there's not really a lot of like sensors on the ground to pick this stuff up. So that was probably the first like really big thing that we've seen in terms of climate change. Certainly there's other changes that we've observed like the volcano that just erupted in Tonga. We had been monitoring that for weeks with NASA um, and so we had images up until like two hours before it had the big eruption and then we've been collecting images afterward as well, where you can see that the island is just gone. Um, So it's, that's a really striking thing too. Like stuff on Mars changes, but it's usually something small, like a tiny landslide or a little avalanche or a tiny new crater. Um, You don't get these like massive sudden changes, generally speaking. And then on earth, you could literally go from one day to the next and have a landscape be almost unrecognizable due to some kind of natural disaster or something like that. I mean, that volcano explosion was insane, right? It's the size, you can see it's the size of countries. Yeah, uh, I think it's the largest eruption that has been observed from space at this point. And so they they knew that was going to happen? They they had a lead up to that? I don't think they knew that an eruption of that magnitude was going to happen, but it had been erupting for a few weeks before that. So originally... There were just these two separate islands, um, Hunga Tonga and Hunga Hapai. And then this volcano that used to be underwater had erupted to the point that it was visible above water and kind of connected those two islands together. So if you look at the images from like November, December of last year, you can actually see the island pieces that have some some green vegetation on them. Like they've obviously been around a lot longer than the middle part. And the middle part is just like this gray volcano with a little caldera at the top. Um, and that had been erupting for weeks. And so there, there were folks that were monitoring that, kind of keeping an eye on the volcano. And the volcano itself 
only became visible above water in like 20, 2015, I think it was. So the island itself was very young. Um, and it was unusual because islands that form like that tend to disappear very quickly. It's basically just made out of ash. And so the current of the ocean gets rid of them within you know, a matter of weeks or so. But this thing stuck around for years. So it was kind of an anomaly. So there were folks that were already investigating this. So that was why we just happened to have imagery of it beforehand um, so that folks at NASA could be looking at it. And then um, you just had to wait until the ash cloud cleared afterward to see if we could get more images. But it, it was very, very striking. Um, and it, it's great that we have people that are keeping an eye on this in, in terms of researchers around the world, like trying to see if they can predict things like this. But I'm, I'm not sure they could have predicted that there would be a, an eruption of that magnitude. Um, like that was just immense. Is that a permanent feature now? Do they know? The volcano? Yeah. Uh, As in, so, so like you said, uh, the ash that usually forms and washes away from, it, it's not like that. It's an actual honest to God island that now exists. Well, it was until the big eruption. And uh, now that the ash part is gone, um, the, the remainder of the volcano is all underwater at this point, except for mm -hmm. like the part where the two little islands peak up. They're kind of part of the complex of the volcano that just happens to be above water. But the, the part that had formed in 2015, that part is completely obliterated. Hmm. I, I haven't uh, I haven't been following. I, I really should be following it because it, it's a massive news story at the moment. But um, back to Mars, <laughs> there, there, there's these recent... I didn't think I'd be speaking about Earth. That <laughs> <laughs> There are these um, recent uh, detections of uh, methane. Um, is there any indication at all that that could be biological in origin or is it just... It's, almost certainly not. What, what's the story there? So this has been a big mystery for the past maybe decade or so on Mars since the, the detections were confirmed on the ground. Because um, on Earth, usually methane comes from two sources. It's either biologically generated as some kind of waste product. So I think on Earth, the main source of methane in our atmosphere is from cows. Uh, we know there's no cows on Mars, but there are bacteria that can produce methane as, as a byproduct. The other explanation is there's a geologic process called serpentinization, which is basically when you have warm water interacting with certain types of rocks, it can generate methane as like a, a gas byproduct. This might seem like the less exciting answer when it comes to Mars, because bacteria is more exciting than rocks, unless you're a geologist, maybe. Um, but the... Uh, the exciting thing for Mars in terms of if it's serpentinization is the warm water aspect. That means that there has to be heat inside of Mars that is warming up water to cause this interaction. So the water and the heat together says, okay, there maybe there is some geologic activity inside of Mars that's low enough that it's not expressing itself on the surface in terms of volcanic activity, but it is enough to boil a little bit of water to interact with some rocks and then like something is causing it to only be released seasonally. So unfortunately, it's probably not bacteria. That would be the cooler answer. Um, but even if it is geologic, it still tells us something important about Mars and that there might be warm water underground. And on Earth, anywhere you have water, there's liquid water. There's usually something that has managed to survive there. So there could be a biological implication from that standpoint. Maybe there is this tiny little abode for life underneath the surface of Mars. So either way, there is 
it's a nice indication that we have some possibility of finding something that's still living, which is that's 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 what you'd want, really, isn't it? If you were going to find anything on Mars. Yeah, I think that's obviously what everybody is hoping for. We really want to find Martians, regardless of whether it's a microbe or, you know, a little green man that walks up and waves at your camera. The latter's probably not going to happen. <laughs> so do you think we should or sh- should we be limiting? Uh, okay, so so currently there are private uh, interests when it comes to landing on Mars. Do you think we should be putting restrictions there because in terms of contamination of the surface? You know, it, it'd be quite sad if we never found out uh, if there was life endemic to Mars because of our own contamination, right? Yeah, this is actually why folks have really been pressing on Mars sample return right now because we might be reaching the, the end of mostly uncontaminated Mars. Even if you send humans to Mars and they're in spacesuits mm-hmm. and living inside rovers and bubbles and things like that, we are inherently messy. You know, we shed skin, we shed hair, we have bacterial colonies that live inside our bodies. No matter what we do, like some of that is going to escape into the Martian environment and that could contaminate life that's there, either in a way that it kills off native life or maybe it evolves or mutates to a point that we think we discover alien life, but it's really just a mutated version of something that we brought with us. And that would be really unfortunate. Um, There are what we call planetary protection rules that like NASA abides by, which is what's kept us from going to certain places on Mars. Like we haven't gone anywhere where we think there's liquid water today because there's very strict, which means very expensive um, sanitation rules, essentially, that we would have to abide by to try and make sure that the spacecraft has been like ultra sterilized. And you would think that flying through space for six to eight months in a radiation filled environment would be enough to sterilize spacecraft, but it's not. There's still stuff that can survive that harsh environment, even in space. Um, they might be dormant by the time they get to Mars, but they they could still be alive. So this is a problem. Um, SpaceX has said that they will follow planetary protection guidelines. But again, if it's anything that involves humans, that's going to be very, very tricky to do. So it could be really important for us to get these pristine samples from Mars before we ever send any humans as sort of like a a benchmark to go by. Do Earth and Mars form a closed ecosystem anyway? I mean, you find meteorites on Earth from Mars and I'm guessing vice versa, right? So is it the case that just occasionally we have sort of ejector, which is seeding you know, from Earth to Mars and vice versa. And so we shouldn't really expect it to be clean. That's an interesting way of wording it. I've never heard someone call it a closed ecosystem. I really like that. Um, There is this idea of something called panspermia, which is um, maybe life on Earth came from a Martian meteorite. Like maybe life actually arose on warm, wet Mars. And then one of those ejected pieces happened to carry bits with it that seeded life on Earth. It's a little bit harder to go the other way around just because of the gravity well of the solar system. So uh, if you're ejecting something off the earth, it's gonna tend to to move toward the inner part of the solar system. It'd be having to go really fast to go the other direction. Um, It's not, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it would be way less likely than stuff making it from Mars to earth. And even then we only have a hundred samples or something like that when it comes to Mars. Um, So yeah, there is a possibility that 
maybe we have been exchanging things back and forth or life did start on Mars and then came here. I think that would be really, really difficult for us to prove unless we did actually, you know, find one of those really deep cores that we bring up and we're really sure that the drill itself wasn't contaminated. And then we Mm -hmm. analyze and we find something that looks, you know, genetically similar to really something very ancient on the earth, but like not quite the same. How would NASA announce it? Like, let's say, for example, they did bring up this drill core and they found still living, maybe not bacteria, but uh, would you call it bacteria still if it's not, uh, if it's alien? It depends on the structure, I guess, because there's multiple type. I think we usually just say microbial life because it could be archaea, it could be bacteria. It depends on like what it actually is. It could be something else. Maybe, yeah. But so let's let's say, for example, they found something that wasn't in any of uh, the classifications that we currently have. How, how would they announce on Earth? Did it, what's the plan? I'm not sure. I think if it's something like the Allen Hills meteorite, like Bill Clinton, while he was president, gave a speech about that. So I imagine it might not be something that comes out at the level of a NASA press conference. It might be like a presidential level announcement that is tied to some kind of press conference. And that way it actually gets out there. But I think because we had the the false starts before with the Viking experiment and with this meteorite, like they would they would want to make really, really sure that what they found was not a contaminant and that it wasn't geologic. Like we know that this is a thing that could not have come with us from Earth. Um, and I I always I wonder what the public reaction will that will will be to that. <laughs> um, I think given how we don't focus on anything for more than five seconds in society anymore, I worry that if we don't find aliens that are like, you know, in Star Trek where the Vulcans land and come off and like, you know, give the live long and prosper symbol, that it won't really register to people because they'll be like, who, who cares about bacteria on Mars? That's not a big deal. When it is a really big deal, but I think it it just wouldn't land the same way as some kind of alien species that we can actually communicate with. Um, or like drilling into the oceans of Europa, turning on a light and seeing that it's full of space whales or something like that. That would be super cool. But I think the the broad scale impact of finding microbial life on Mars in today's day and age won't have the same kind of impact as maybe it would have if it was something that we announced in like the 1980s or the 1990s. And that makes Mm. me a little sad. Do do you think there is any chance that we will find something that's a little bit more advanced than uh, microbial life? Is there, is there anywhere in the, uh, you mentioned Europa, is there anywhere where you could actually imagine uh, anything like that happening in, in our solar system? I I certainly don't think it's the case on Mars, um, but I think Europa is probably the best chance. We know that there is a large ocean that's under this ice cap. We know that it's warm. We have a similar kind of environment under uh, parts of the Antarctic ice cap. So we know that stuff can survive in that environment. And um, I think in terms of finding life that's alive today, Europa and maybe Enceladus, which is kind of similar, it has not a global ocean, but a a small ocean under the South Pole. Um, That's one of the moons of Saturn. And it's actually ejecting material through these geysers into space. So the Cassini spacecraft um, was able to sample a little bit of this and saw that there's organic material coming out of that warm ocean. So huge plus there for maybe finding something that's alive. Um, 
and it's just cool that there's geysers that we can see from space. Like if, if anybody listening has not seen them, just Google Enceladus geysers. It's some of the most incredible images you will ever see from space. Um, those are probably the two best candidates. Some people will also argue like maybe there's microbial life in the in certain layers of the atmosphere of Venus, but again, not something complex enough like a space whale. I'm really holding out for like European whales. Let's see if that happens. I'd be pretty happy with something like krill or something. That would be Yeah. Something that is recognizable to us as humans as being alive. Hmm. But I guess if you have krill then there is room for space whales. It's true. So you gotta build up the rest of that that <laughs> ecosystem <laughs> yeah you need all the trophic levels but um i want to get some view uh or your opinion on some things going forward in the future so in terms of uh so currently or in the past few years we've had all the billionaires uh you know shooting themselves up into space you know this sort of uh, private space tourism what do you think space tourism will look like going forward say 50 years I think at that point, it will probably be kind of com as commonplace as air travel. And that might sound ridiculous today, but if we look at historical air travel, I mean, it used to cost like $5,000 to fly from one side of the US to the other. And now you can do it for like, you know, 50 bucks on Southwest if you're lucky. Um, I doubt anybody could have fathomed at the point when air travel was $5,000 a ticket that it would ever become something that was affordable to the masses. And we're kind of at that level with space travel. It's it's way more expensive than $5,000, but we've finally proven the case. Like this is possible. Now we have to get it down to a price point where more than the uber rich can afford it. And then like as more people start to adopt it, like if it gets to the level of maybe a first class flight, like a, a long haul first class flight, then you get a, a whole nother level of people that can adopt it. And then when it becomes more, it feels more attainable, then you might get to a level of, okay, this is something that like I could save up for as a normal person who doesn't make a million dollars a year. Uh, you know, if I saved up for a few years, I could save up for it like I would uh, a dream vacation to like Bora Bora or something like that, but instead I'll go into space. Um, but I think we've gone over that big hurdle of, oh, you don't have to be the right stuff, astronaut, super physically fit kind of person to be able to go into space. So now that we've proven that, just getting it to a point of, okay, how are we going to make this commercially viable? Will this become like an alternative to air transport? I would love to travel from LA to New York in 90 minutes. And that's something you could do with a suborbital flight. I hate flying. So the less time I have to spend in a confined space, the better. <laughs> and I think there are a lot of other people that would jump on that opportunity as well. Also, if you get to experience weightlessness, right? Yeah. That's sold with the you know, some people would want you to go around twice before you land. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll just, just stick, stick around kind of like riding on the bus. I'll, I'll go a few more stops. It's fine. Do you think, uh, all these, uh, space tourists should be called astronauts? Oh, I feel like this is controversial and I, I don't want to offend any of my friends that have gone into space, um, which feels surreal to say that. Uh, but some of my friends have been these commercial, um, on these commercial missions. I think, to me, astronaut is a job description. So I, I think if you are just purely a tourist, you shouldn't be called an astronaut. Um, I feel like it's almost disrespectful to someone that, that like actually was an astronaut, kind of like you wouldn't want to be disrespectful to somebody that was in the military and did a job. Like you wouldn't say that you were an officer in the military if you just happened to visit an air base. Um, 
but I think there is a, there's been some argument over some of the recent crews about whether they are tourists or astronauts. It's like, well, if you went into space and you were doing a job, like then yes, like I think you're, you're an astronaut. If you just paid a million dollars to go to the, not a million, many millions of dollars to go to the space station, but you just like went to visit. I don't, that's to me, that's not the same thing. So I feel like there should be a distinction there purely based on the fact that like, like true astronauts who do this as a job and like go into space for weeks or months at a time, like mad respect for those people. And they, they, in my mind, deserve to be at that different tier from people that are just like paying for a joyride into space. I'm sorry to any of my friends that have gone into space recently. <laughs> I'm sure they still love you. <laughs> I think you're safe. <laughs> Do you think, uh, okay, do you think you will live long enough to see, well, you won't see them personally, perhaps, but do you think uh, to see the first baby born in space? I hope so. I feel like we're moving in that direction relatively quickly. Like, I think, I think we'll probably get humans back to the moon permanently in the next decade. I think we'll probably see humans on Mars in the next 10 to 20 years. I, I really hope it's not 20, but, you know as soon as possible. And so, you know, obviously if we're going to go to these places to stay, that's going to be the next thing that we're going to have to experiment with because we have, we don't really have a good idea of what reproduction would be like in different gravity environments and if it's going to cause any kind of issues. And obviously that's a really important question for us to answer if we're going to try to build cities on other worlds. So for science, in other words. Yeah, for science, unfortunately. That sounds very, uh, I don't know like dry and academic, I guess, but in sometimes the only way to, to figure it out is to try, even if we have to maybe try in some test tubes at first, but it's a question we're going to have to answer at some point. They have had, they've had frogs born in space, right? Or they have done- Yeah, they've done they non-human experiments. I think that, I, I don't know if it was frogs, but I think that they've done this with you know, non-complicated species and it's been okay, but- I guess the question is, yeah, is there any gonna is there going to be any kind of effect on like fetal development in low gravity in terms of a human? And I'm not sure we have a good idea of that yet. It seems like something you could pretty easily test with mice, uh, even now, just in, on the ISS. I'm I'm sure they've done something like this. Maybe, yeah. It, it's not something that I've kept up on, so there could be an experiment that I just don't know about. Hmm. So, are there any um, future missions you're particularly excited about? Uh, I mean, I'm really excited about the Europa Clipper mission. It's unfortunately not going to go to the ocean of Europa, but it will give us a lot more information than we have from Galileo, which got there in the 90s. So it's been a while since we've gotten like really close data of Europa. Um, I guess we're kind of there right now with Juno, but Juno's really focused on Jupiter and not the moons. Um, and I'm super excited. I guess the Webb telescope is not a future mission anymore. Um, but once it actually starts collecting data, like I know how revolutionary Hubble Space Telescope was to me as a child. Um, like I remember getting the issue of Sky and Telescope in the mail that had the pillars of creation on the cover and it blew my mind. I, I think I was like six or seven or something. Like I couldn't even process how incredible that was. And I put it on my bedroom wall and I was just like, space is amazing. So I'm, I'm hoping that the Webb Telescope will provide that feeling to a ton more people just like seeing galaxies and stars being born like at the very earliest times in our universe like 
it's it's going to be really cool. Um, and of course, Starship. I'm really looking forward to Starship Orbital launch this year. I really want to go see it in person if I can. Um, it's it's going to be a beast. Uh, but see, be able to see like hopefully this thing that will eventually take humans to Mars would be really really amazing. How how do you get the chance to watch a launch? Is it can anyone go along? How does, I have no idea. Yeah, I mean. Uh, like if you just go to Cape Canaveral in Florida, you can see the launch from nearby beaches and some different viewing points. So you don't need any special access to do that. Uh, it's more just, it's just a matter of like how close do you want to be? So there's free areas mm -hmm. that are a little bit farther away. There's some areas that you can pay to get into where it will cost more. And then there's like closer kind of VIP areas. That's like, if you're working on the mission, they'll let a certain number of people in. But if you just want to go and hang out at the beach in Florida and happen to watch a launch while you're there, you can totally do that. Same thing with the, the SpaceX launches that are happening in Texas. You can't get like onto the base necessarily, but you could be nearby in Boca Chica and, and see these launches because they are, uh, I mean, they're flying through the sky, right? So it's very easy to see from even kind of far away. I'd love to see one of these and absolutely love to one day in the future. But <laughs> I want to, I want to wrap up with just a view of the future. What do you think will be the next Apollo scale mission that we'll do? Do you think it's going to be Mars? Do you think it's going to be something else? What, what's, what's your view for humanity's next big uh, shot into space? I hope that it's Mars. I, I mean, we're going to send humans back to the moon, but I don't think it's going to have the same excitement to people as the Apollo missions did because we've been there before. But if we actually send humans to Mars, we make it an event. We tell people why we're going there. We send people that can engage with folks back on earth to make them excited about it and feel like this is something that all of humanity is coming together to do. It's not just some some people will be shot in a tin can to Mars and we're going to ignore them for the next five years. Um, I think that, that that might really be the next thing. And I I can only hope that people would get just as excited about that as they did with Apollo. Um, I, for the same things about the, the discovery potentially of life on Mars, I worry that people are too distracted all the time to really pay much attention, even if it was going to happen. And some people seem to think we've already been to Mars because I get that question a lot, even from adults. <laughs> They're like, oh, the Martian was based on a true story, right? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> if you hasn't been to Mars, I think that like you probably would have heard about it. It's kind of a big deal. Um, so I, I hope, I really hope that like if we make this a thing that is a human achievement, like a human goal with multiple countries involved, like maybe we can reignite that kind of spirit again. So you believe in uh, Musk mission, for example? I think that that might actually excite people even more than like a NASA-led mission, for example, because SpaceX is really good with marketing and branding. And mm -hmm. there's just this, I don't know, they've managed to generate this excitement and romance around space that I don't think NASA has been able to do in the same way. And... Mm -hmm. It's kind of, it's refreshing to see, like so many people get excited about it. It used to be students would tell me they want to work for NASA when they grew up. And now I get tons of students telling me they want to work for SpaceX when they grow up. So like they've done a great job at marketing space. So I think that they would turn a Mars mission into a whole nother level of a production than, than NASA would. And that honestly might be better for 
like the mission in the long run in terms of getting people excited and enthusiastic and interested and like holding their attention for long periods of time. I suppose the key issue there is that they're doing human space flight. That's like the driving force behind what they're doing. I suppose that is the main difference. Yeah. People like robots. They're really cute. You you can get excited about them, but it's not the same. And I, I think there is still this whole other level of enthusiasm around humans doing stuff in space. So maybe we can get people to care about it that way. Well, Tanya Harrison, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. This was great. <laughs> is it, uh, how does it compare to other ones you've done? Is it a bit of a different style or very similar? Um, it, some of them are like super academic and some are more casual. I, I like the more casual ones because I feel like you can have more fun and say ridiculous things. And that's always more fun because it, it lets you be more authentic, like, I, I often say ridiculous things when it comes to space. <laughs> mm. Well, it, it should be fun, actually. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's exploration, right? So Yeah. And kind of that and- the authenticity that I was talking about with astronauts, right? Like, you want people to see that there are people behind this. It's not automatons. It's not robots that are out there doing exploration. It's humans that are controlling these things. And we all think our jobs are really cool because it is like, I, I feel lucky every single day that I've gotten to do the things that I have done in my career. And I mean, I worked really hard to get to the point to be able to do those things. It wasn't just like, oh, look, a rover fell into my lap. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's really amazing to be able to be a part of something like that, that is so expansive and futuristic and something that so few people get to do directly. And so I feel like it's my responsibility to share what we're doing with the world because it is such a limited experience. Do you think, so you mentioned at the very beginning that, uh, you know, you want to, to spend, uh, to send people to Mars who, who might be able to engage with people who aren't just dry and academic or, you know, people who maybe have some experience in entertainment or in teaching. If, for example, um, NASA or SpaceX came to you and said, look, we're, we, we have a seat. Uh, we need someone who's good at communicating, someone who, you know, has a real passion for this. Would, would you go along? Would you? I, I'm really claustrophobic, like extremely claustrophobic. So I think realistically, I wouldn't be able to make it. I would freak out, um, which is unfortunate. I would love to go to Mars. I would love to go and see one of the rovers that I've worked on in person, in place, like, oh, wow, this, like, I've seen you from space all this time, and now I'm standing next to you. But I think realistically, I would have, like, a terrible panic attack, and they would have to kick me off the mission. (laughs) So I'll I'll let other people take that opportunity, and I will just, I will watch them from afar, and I'll promote the heck out of them. And, you know, I think that that's my role, and unless I can become not claustrophobic someday. (laughs) Do you think uh, maybe some great great grandchildren, or you know, a few generations down the line, are going to be on Mars at a museum, and the the rovers are going to be there, lined up? <laughs> that would be really cool. I I kind of hope that they just leave them in place, though. Like maybe build a museum around where the rover had its you know last stand. Um, there's just something kind of beautiful about like we as humans drove the rover for X number of years. And like, this was its final resting place. 
almost treat it like a memorial. Like we're going to protect this rover inside this little building, but like you get to see where it came to rest. The truth is though, it's probably going to get vandalized and graffitied. And uh... <laughs> yeah, because people are terrible, but people, please don't be terrible on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's going to be, hopefully uh, we'll set it up so they can be terrible. I mean, you, in the sense that you want it to be comfortable enough that uh, people don't even think of it as being some great mission anymore, right? Down the line, it, we hope, well, I hope that it becomes maybe even mundane a thousand years from now or hundreds of years from now the kind of thing that you're going on a field trip for at school and kids roll their eyes they're like oh i've seen the rover 10 times mom like i really don't want to go again <laughs> <laughs> well i mean back in the day if you think about it the idea of going to australia would have just been mind-blowing you get to go to a place where rather than deers we have bouncing kangaroos right <laughs> an animal that is nowhere you know um and i suppose the same thing if it all goes well is going to happen with mars maybe the clouds of Venus, who knows? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, at some point the novelty will wear off and it's just like, oh, this is this is the thing that we have here. I don't know. I'm not yeah. sure anybody visiting Australia gets uh, gets tired of kangaroos. Do they, does the novelty ever wear off when you are actually Australian or do they just become a nuisance at some point? <laughs> well, I guess, I guess my point is you still see vandalism in Australia. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's that's way less romantic than the notion of like oh yeah kangaroos are still wonderful even if you see them all the time <laughs> i mean they are still i mean i've lived outside of australia now for about 10 years so i i still get a kick out of them but uh i'm not sure if the average and also the average person lives in a city right oh, so unless if if you're in sydney I guess so. I, I spent a lot of time in Newcastle, and you would routinely see kangaroos there. So that was, you know, for me it wasn't that special. But for maybe for someone coming from Melbourne or somewhere else, escaped sapiens.